Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface appear to be ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Carrie Kennedy Ashley did one of the most generous things I've ever seen. She co-leads a grief ministry in Kansas. Carrie is married with four children. She has a BA and an MA in elementary education. She taught public school language arts for four years and also at a private school for a year after that. She enjoys playing piano and singing. She's a voracious reader of diverse subject matters, and her blog is at smallpiecesofjoy.wordpress.com. Hey, Carrie. Hello, Tim. Well, before we really kind of get into tons and tons of details, I was just kind of hoping that you give us just an overview. What exactly is a grief ministry? So the grief ministry that I help with is tailored to more young adults because there are a lot of support groups out there, um, but we were finding, myself and the co-founder, he um, was finding that it was really hard to find people who have lost parents or spouses or whatever in like the 20s and 30s age. Okay. So that's what our focus is, to provide some support for grief for the younger adults. Okay, so there's there's a gap for people in their 20s and 30s because I guess if you lose a spouse in that age bracket, that's not very common. Right. You know, and then if you lose a parent, well, that that does happen, but it's probably not very common either. Correct. That's maybe more when people are in their 40s or 50s or 60s. Yes. And okay. that's kind of what we were finding as we were looking for support was that there was there was a, like you said, a hole. There was a gap. Okay. Well, before we get into a ton of the details on the grief ministry, I just would kind of like to back up and ask you about your life as a kid and as a teen. And part of that is, is I, I'm just kind of wondering how all of that ultimately played into the grief ministry. But just also it'll give people a sense of the wonderful person that you are. Oh, thanks. So... <laughs> So uh, let's go back to being a kid. What type of a kid were you? Um, well, I loved to be outside when I was a kid. I remember building forts out in our backyard and helping my dad with the garden. Um, I was always playing with the neighborhood kids outside. We would play, you know, flashlight tag, all those kind of things. So um, I think I, w- I was very social as well, even though we were discussing that I'm an introvert. So it's kind of interesting to see that. Um, but that was mostly just as a child. I was there. Oh, and, and in school, like I was a rule follower. I did everything you were supposed to. And my mom was like, Carrie, hey, you're just the perfect child. And I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. But <laughs> that's the side of the perfect child. The perfect child never thinks that she's the perfect child. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I always think it's my brother's. So, and for those of you who know Myers, Myers Briggs, Carrie is pretty sure she's an INFP. Mm-hmm. Introverts, intuitive, feeler, perceiver. Mm-hmm. This is a very sensitive type person who kind of goes into counseling or teaching or writing or ministry or um, things in the arts oftentimes. And so. you got me. There's, I do a lot of those things. Okay. Just <laughs> stuff that Carrie likes. Okay. Um, tell me a story from childhood. Oh, goodness. There are so many. Um I would say the one time that I did not listen to some rules was there was a neighbor who had a uh, treehouse with some rickety stairs. And I remember my dad telling me, you're not supposed to go in that treehouse because it's not safe. And I was like, whatever, I know more than you do. I was probably maybe 12. Well, you did so, know more. Like, you're at the height of your confidence yeah, right. when you're 12. I was like, whatever, dad knows nothing. And so I climbed up 
those stairs and one of them broke and I fell into a wheelbarrow right below and I hurt my tailbone. Oh, Thankfully, no. I didn't break it or anything, but I remember getting in so much trouble for that. <laughs> what? They yell at you just for like climbing some stairs? And... Well, because I didn't listen to my dad. Oh, okay. <laughs> and after that, you were like the super obedient, super polite kid. No, but I had my that. dad's, you know thoughts in my head or his his words in my head like gotcha. you probably shouldn't do that that's not very safe so the next time you broke the rules you had to be a bigger sneak yeah yeah I definitely broke something later in life you know not doing very something very smart but like a bone <laughs> yeah oh no <laughs> we can talk about that later <laughs> okay we can talk about that later I've embarrassed you I'm very sorry no it's fine okay okay so when you were a kid what did you want to be when you grew up well i Depends on when I was, you know, like what age. Yeah. Uh, most kids, when I was maybe like 12 or 13 around me, wanted to be marine biologists, but I don't think any of us really knew what a marine biologist was. Everybody wanted to be a marine Most of my friends did. Why? Maybe because it was by the ocean. Okay. I, I don't know. Okay. But as I started to learn more, I didn't like the magazines that were available to me when I was a teenager, and so I really wanted to be an editor of oh. a good, positive girls magazine oh okay because you're reading the girls magazines and are you thinking okay they have bad grammar or are you thinking they have <laughs> bad content bad content bad content yeah and so you kind of wanted to fix the bad content and it might not have been just bad content it wasn't for me like okay. i wasn't a girly girl i wasn't you know interested in a lot of fashion or things like that but i was still feminine uh-huh. and so i wanted something that you know was more true to people like me Okay. I felt like, again, there was a gap there. Because you were kind of an outdoorsy, sporty girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you wanted to be like an outdoorsy, sporty girl who was, I don't know, feminine and soft. Yeah, like still, you know, liked to look pretty sometimes. I mean, you just know a little bit about makeup or fashion. So she wasn't just wearing t-shirts and jeans, which I still do. But, gotcha. So, so maybe a little less fashion and a little bit more outdoorsy. Yeah. Gotcha. Something like that. Gotcha. I don't know, cute hiking gear or yeah. something like that. <laughs> Okay, I don't know. Yeah, I don't so know. that's what I wanted to do, and that's kind of what guided me to go to K-State for journalism. Oh, okay, so then you wound up at K-State with journalism. Well, let's, let's uh, before we get there, let's talk about the teen years just okay. a little bit. Well, I was the biggest band nerd. Maybe oh. not the biggest, but I was a huge band nerd Okay. in high school. Um, I played the flute, which I always joke that it's an instrument you really can't hear in marching band, so I was just in it for the fun and the friends, and... Um, I guess you can't screw up then. Right, which is also really important. <laughs> you could play whatever you wanted to play. You could play like, I just gotta be me or something yeah. while everybody else is playing something else. Yeah, they'd be like, oh, that's just Carrie being silly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I um, loved the... I started off high school trying to be cool. I okay. think some people do that. Like I had the same friends from middle school who they were always just trying to get the cute boy to like them. And they were just always like trying to be cool and doing all the... the popular cool kids thanks yeah and then i finally found all of these great people who were authentically themselves Mm. in band and it allowed me to be authentic oh because i never really felt comfortable with those people okay that's interesting see i I didn't do band i did some sports and i did choir and i did some acting and plays and things like that so band is band 
I don't know. What's the cliche? Is band the place where people go to be 100% themselves? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I think the cliche is that they're just really nerdy. Like, Okay. <laughs> just In other words, and... 100% themselves, well, though. Well, I guess, I guess that that's what nerdy is. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not, I don't want to talk you into it. I don't know. I don't know what the cliche yeah, of band is. I don't know, really, because all I know is like the American Pie thing, um, band camp. But it definitely allowed me to be more myself okay and so I had this transition where I lost all of my cool friends when I was starting to become more me and band just allowed me to have that expression that I didn't really have before you know like personally with relationships just that commonality of like creativity and um, it was also a great you know we always said it should be our gym credit Mm. because marching band was really tough yeah um so that's that's kind of um, an interesting thing that I started thinking about. Okay, I think I'm going to try to ask you the best question I can think of, period. And that is, well, then, who exactly is Carrie Kennedy Ashley? I mean, because you said band allowed you to be more of yourself. Mm-hmm. What does that mean, be more of yourself? Who, who are you deep down? Um, or who were you? Well, at first... Um, I was very much just trying to be like everybody else because I didn't really know. And I think a lot of us do that. You know, we just kind of look for the cues in society of like, how do I fit in? And, you know, but then when I went into high school and I was seeing that there are all these different types of people. Right. And that you can't be all of that. And you can't, you know, make everyone like you. And so it takes those kind of initiation type things and experiences to be like, okay, actually this is where I fit. And I fit with the people who had fun, who didn't care what other people thought, hmm. who loved to hang out with the band teachers. It was, you know, it was cool to like make jokes with them or, you know, sit out, we sat outside the band room in the morning, you know, just, it was kind of a liberating experience in my high school. So it was so big that you could find your little niche. That's cool. Okay. So that's cool. I feel like. When you ask that question, I like to be authentic. I like to know who people are. I like to see the real you. And you don't want to feel like, oh, I have to put on a show in order to please these other people over there. And I don't want to be around people that feel like they need to put on a show either. Okay, so authenticity is Mm -hmm. is like a gigantic value. Yes. Which is interesting because you're also just super gentle and super nice and you really don't want to hurt anybody else's feelings. (laughs) I'm a peacemaker, right? I mean, yes. Yeah, so I that's, don't like conflict. <laughs> it's an interesting combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. but but it's uh, very typical if, if people know what an INFP is. Right. So um, not to pigeonhole you, no. because cause what you're doing now is anything but pigeonholed, I think. Right. So, okay, so then you go off to college, mm-hmm. and then how does college change you? Gosh, it changes me a lot. Um, I went to K-State with the intent of being a journalism major. Okay. So I started, and I got a job on the newspaper, the Collegian. And so I started college basically before college started because I had to report to start learning about being a reporter. And that experience right from the get-go was so important because I learned quickly that it was not what I was called to do. Okay. I had to be on call in the um, newsroom for two hours every week, and whatever story came in, I had to cover and one of my first stories was um, a student had died on the Salina campus. Oh. And, of course, that's just terrible. And yeah. And I was like, why do I need to cover this? Like, I feel like this is not... 
It just made me very uncomfortable. And so, but I had to call, he was a part of the ROTC program. I had to call the ROTC leader. I wish I knew the correct terminology for that. Okay. I had to call him and ask him, so tell me about the student that just died. And it just felt so inauthentic, which, you know, we're talking about. Like, right. I was like, I feel like I'm not showing care or compassion because I have to get the story written in two hours. So that was kind of my first indication that this was probably not going to be what I wanted to do. Mm. And then I, I did the paper for a semester. I wrote some really great pieces and I really enjoyed it and learned a lot. But at the end of the day, I just was like, this is not the life for me. Okay. Because you have to crawl to get to where you want to be. Right. And I would have to be a reporter for a very long time before I could even be think about being an editor and creating my own magazine. Yeah. Everybody kind of starts at the bottom. Yes. You know, I suppose unless they create their own platform or something like that or create their own newsletter Something along those lines. But yeah. but even then, then you start at the bottom. But at least you're starting where you want to start. You're starting yes. at the bottom that you prefer. Correct. Versus somebody else's bottom. Yes. And there's just not a whole lot of, like, you're basically told what to do and you do it. Okay. And there's not a whole lot of choice in, like, what you covered. And anyway, so that's a long story short about how I decided to change my major. Okay. become a teacher. And that was a huge flip for me. Because I had inklings that I might want to be a teacher in the past, but journalism just seemed like way more exciting. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, it, it should seem like it's exciting. Like, hey, you go to like the seedy underbelly of the city and you get the scandal, you get yeah. the dirt, you get the grime, you, you know, you get the, the crime. You know, it just sounds right. absolutely fantastic. Right. And maybe if I was a different personality, it would be okay. Right. But I just, the insensitivity of some of the things that I had to ask for, mm. you know, the timing of calling people and things, it just, yeah, it caused me a lot of anxiety. And I was like, well, that's not a good sign. Right. People used to make fun of Barbara Walters and other people for questions that they thought were kind of dumb. Like Barbara would ask somebody, are you a survivor? And people were just waiting for somebody to say and reply, no, Barbara, I did not survive. <laughs> You know, because everybody <laughs> survives, you right. know? So, yeah. If you're being interviewed. Yes. So, yeah. So, that experience was wonderful. And then I changed to education, and that's where I found my home. Okay. Um, and throughout that experience, just going through education wise, that was really, it changed me. But I also went into college kind of like a lot of people is like, oh, I have freedom. So, like, I didn't really want to go to church. I really. Didn't want to um, do all the things that I did when I was in high school. And I wanted to meet new friends. and But it was hard for me to break away sometimes because my high school was so big, a lot of the kids were still at Keystone. Mm. So um, you're hoping to go to college and establish a new identity. Yeah. And 300 people recognized you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people were on the same floor that I was in high school with. So, so, so much for the new identity. Yes. Um, so I did end up going to the um, St. Isidore's Catholic Student Center. Okay. And um, that was also just kind of a fluke because I met someone at newspaper who was in the choir. And she's like, hey, come sing in the choir. And I was like, sweet, I love singing. Let's go do that. Okay. It had nothing to do with the religious aspect. I just wanted to sing. Okay. <laughs> but God works in the And she ways. seemed nice. And it seemed like, yeah. oh, hey, here's a friend. Right. And that was the other thing. She was kind of my only friend at that time, too. Gotcha. Um, so then I started hanging out with people there and getting to know people there and that's like my best friends still to this day are from there wow yeah that's profound 
most of the people live in and around Kansas City or within like two hours. That's, I think, what a lot of people think is the ideal college experience Mm -hmm. is that you go and you have something transformative, but you also meet the people that are going to stick with you for the rest of Mm -hmm. your life. I I guess at any level, whether that happens in grade school or high school or the military or something, I think people just think that's the ideal experience. You you meet that, that group that you just click with and boom. That's them. Right. And it did take a long time to get there. Um, and I also have this, I talk a lot my, about my dad because he passed away seven years ago. And he, a lot of the, the only the few things that he said to me always stick in my head. And one of them was like, surround yourself with good people. Mm. Like make good friends. And I don't know if it's a subconscious thing or I consciously do it, but I try really hard to surround myself around people that I can learn from and that I can help, you know? Um, and I think that authenticity thing helps with that as well. Like I don't want to be around people that are giving me lies or are, you know, not telling me who they are. Do you you feel like you're pretty good at sniffing that out in people, honesty versus dishonesty? I, I really can't say yes or no. I like, I I think it is a subconscious thing maybe. Uh Um, but I also try to dig deep Okay. Anybody that I meet, which can be kind of intimidating. Okay. (laughs) Like I met my husband and my first question to him was, tell me your life story. That's pretty good opening (laughs) question. (laughs) So, you know, take it or leave it. You want to be with, you want to talk to me or not? So I knew a girl who would do that on first dates and I think she got happily married with six kids, but she asked them about five or six really powerful moral questions on the first date. You know, and there were things along the lines of, uh, do you support this or do you not support this? And uh, you reject this other thing. And it it was all just very polarizing stuff. And, Mm. you know, she might like the guy, but if he didn't line up on four out of five or five out of five issues, then she would say, hey, I want to thank you for a pleasant evening. But there's not going to be another one. (laughs) Right. I don't know if she would say it like that. However, she would say it. But there was not going to be another evening. So I I think over time, I think people's real character truly does emerge Mm -hmm. almost all the time, unless you're dealing with like a spy or a world-class con artist or something like that. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to sniff that out. Okay. Well, you (laughs) might, I've read a lot of books about spies and con artists and I think they're very hard for people to sniff out. Yeah. So yeah, if anybody wants to read the best book on con artists, a lot of people (laughs) think it's called The Confidence Game by... Dr. Maria Konnikova, that's actually her name. Okay. She's a Russian PhD, and people think it was the best book written on con artists in the last 70 years. And she believes that 100% of the population on Earth gets conned. And then she also believes that getting conned has nothing to do with your IQ, and it has nothing to do with how young or old you are, or what skin color you are, or if you're a guy, or if you're a girl. It has nothing to do with any of that. What she thinks is the key driving force of getting conned is, how desperate are you? She said people who are down and out, who have been kicked in the shins by life, who are suffering, unfortunately, they are the easiest mark for con artists. And she gave an example, which was, you know, a really interesting example. There was this Nobel Prize winning scientist in physics. So this guy is a genius and he's world recognized as a genius. Well, he's 65. 
this uh, 23-year-old gorgeous blonde-haired Swedish girl with a sweet personality writes him and says, you know, I've always admired you and I've admired physics and uh, would you be interested in pursuing a romantic relationship with me? And then he thinks this is fantastic. And so then he sends her all of his money and she absolutely cleans him out. And we have no idea who this woman is or if she even is a woman because nobody ever found her, no, no sight, no sound, nothing. And so people would ask, well, how does a brilliant Nobel Prize winning physicist gets, get cheated this way? And really the explanation is he's a lonely old man. So, I mean, there's that desperate factor, yeah. and that's just how it goes. So, so if you're desperate, you're probably going to fall for something that under normal circumstances you would say, you know, th- there's just something weird about this. Right. You know? So, yeah. yeah. It's food for thought. Yeah, just a little food for thought. So, okay, <laughs> so you go to college, and then you become a teacher. Um, okay, and then... Can we transition into the the Greek ministry? Well, let's go back um, between college and um, moving to Kansas City. Yeah, please do. Student teaching. Please do. Um, Because for two summers or a summer and a half, I went and worked at Camp Tekawitha down in Williamsburg, Kansas. Yeah. That's kind of a place in the country where kids can do all kinds of activities, but... You know, like they can ride horses, they can do a rock climbing wall, they can do archery, they can do all kinds of cool stuff, but they also, uh, they get kind of a, a dose of Christianity. Correct. Yes. So, okay. So then, go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. So it's um, faith-based camp. Yeah. And I was a counselor there for one summer and then for half of another summer. And that was also a very transitional point in my life because um, the people there were just so intent on creating an environment where you could meet Jesus. And, you know, I have met Jesus many times in my life, but it was a different way. And see, you know, and I was a minister to these children, helping them to meet Jesus. So it was very much this, I have to work on myself so that I can be good for these kids. And um, I think my love for ministry really grew there as well. Because the joy you get from seeing the work that you do and you see the fruit in the children or, you know, the people that you're around, it just brings you so much joy, at least in my experience. Mm. And so that I never really knew that I loved to do ministry like that until I went to Camp Tekawitha. And from there, I started working with um, young adult or the youth ministries of Ascension and helping out with music ministry like it just kind of opened the floodgates as far as like oh what are my actual gifts because i went into tech with thinking are you kidding me i'm the one that's gonna go and help form these young people i don't know about that but it allowed me to see these gifts that i wasn't seeing wow so you just sort of became a uh, junkie after that, so. you had to do music ministry, and <laughs> yeah. what was the other one that you um, I, I helped out with the youth ministry, so I was kind of a mentor for some of the high school teens at one of our local churches. Gotcha, gotcha. So. Well, it's, it's very powerful helping other people. I was just listening to a podcast with clinical psychologist Jordan B. Peterson, mm-hmm. and he comes at things maybe from a more secular point of view, but he was basically saying that helping another person achieve their potential is perhaps the greatest pleasure on the face mm-hmm. of the earth. So um, 
I just think that's really awesome and really amazing that you're able to do that. Right. And I think that that I was so grateful that when I went back to Kansas City and started my student teaching and got my first job that I could I could do ministry while working. You know, like I could yes. do my job and I could do the ministry work. And even, you know, your job can also be a form of ministry as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's just it's very very powerful just no matter how you look at it. I'm glad that you made me go back and detour and, and get into that. I'm sorry that I didn't know that and that I skipped over that. Because, oh, no, that's fine. Well, I think it's going to spill great over into the Greek ministry yes, that, you, that you joined. So why did you join it? Well, first of all, in order to be part of a grief group, you need to have experienced grief or be a griever. And so that obviously means that I had lost someone um, important to me in my life. And... I will try and make this sort of brief as far as how I lost my father okay. and kind of how I got there. Well, just whatever details, Carrie, yeah. that you think are important. I mean, we have all the time in the world. Do we? We do. <laughs> well, um, my father, uh, Kevin Kennedy, he um, had a seizure in November of 2012. Okay. Which was um, a little under two months after my first child was born. Okay. So I'm a, I was a new mom with almost two month old, and I get a phone call from my brother saying, "Are you sitting down?" Mm. And which is never good. Um, and he said that Dad has suffered a seizure, and he was he's okay, but things are not looking good. Okay. So he had suffered a seizure at our home and then two life-threatening ones in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Oh my gosh. And they found a tumor um, and they did immediate brain surgery and they did all of the testing and found out that it was a grade four glioblastoma, which is one of the, we call it a monster. It's one of the nastiest, most aggressive and hard to treat cancers. And it's one of the most rare and it's in the poor man's brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in his brain. And it was big enough to cause the seizure. Huh. And I believe they found another tumor at some point. And so he eventually went through two brain surgeries. And they removed what they could. But this tumor is like fingertips. So like it just like spreads. And it's very hard to operate. Oh, boy. Um, so Like an octopus? Kind of, yeah. Okay. I mean, it just got ten. Yeah, it has tentacles, okay. and so it just—it's very difficult to remove. And the treatments have not changed a whole lot in the past ten years. Okay. Um, which became kind of an issue as we were trying to find more treatments. Okay. But, so, um, we—you know—you're not supposed to Google, but of course I googled, and the average survival is around fourteen months after diagnosis. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, I'm used to seeing, like, year, two-year type stuff. But, I mean, this is, like, you have a year. Okay. And in the shock of things, you, 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 I just, we just were, like, we're moving forward. We're doing what we can. And I think that's a really smart response. So, we got the chemo started. We got the radiation going. And um, the unfortunate part about this cancer for us, well... It's cancer, but it also changed my dad's personality. So, like, once the seizure happened, we basically lost my dad's real personality. Oh. So, we talk about authenticity, and it's... I couldn't be really authentic with my dad. Yeah. For those 10 months that we had him. Um, I'm just going to guess that, I don't know, maybe he became belligerent or more aggressive it was or... less it was the opposite he opposite. was more like a child oh. so he didn't really know you know he was like 
I'm going to go have my birthday party at Livestrong Park, which I think is Children's Mercy Park. Okay. Now. I don't know. Oh my gosh. So he just sort of reverted the child. <laughs> right. And he, he was just, he was like, I want to make sure that we played board games so that you don't tell George that I never played board games. You know, like he was in and out of things, but it was like, we lost dad once and then the, like the personality. And then we started watching the physical decline. Oh boy. So yeah, I don't want to get too negative with this because that I would love to share that story at some point. Yeah. Um, but what I also want to share is through that experience, we also had some really great um, joys because when you know that you only have a few months, like you hit the ground running, at least my family did. We were like, okay, what does dad want to do? And of course, again, he's like, I want to have my birthday party at Livestrong. And we're like, okay, well, we can't do that. But um, we, uh, he came to visit me when I was living in Indiana at the time. So he came to visit and we did cherry picking and we went to Lake Michigan. And then my aunt planned this beautiful, awesome bucket list trip to the Grand Canyon. Okay. So she used social media. We planned a trip in less than two weeks. People donated their Southwest points for flights, for uh, rental cars. Someone found us at VRBO to stay in. People paid for our meals there. It was just... Super generous. Yes, and we found a foundation that um, raises money for um, helicopter rides for the... Or they raised money for a helicopter ride over wow. the Grand Canyon. Okay, cool. And it was just like this beautiful showing of generosity that, you know, we were just like, what? We're going to Green Canyon in two weeks? Like, what is happening? Um, and that trip was just a delight. Because even though Dad really didn't know what was happening, he still could experience things. He just kind of became a kid again. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, that's kind of how I would describe it. And, like, there were some nights where he was just like, wow, like, the stars are putting on a concert for us. And, you know, it was... That's a beautiful image. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. And these are just things that I'm like, gosh, I'm so glad we have these memories. Yeah. And we had a party for him. Like right after we got back to the Grand Canyon, we planned a party because my dad's phrase was always, it's good to be um, seen, not viewed. So we talked about like, it's good to be alive <laughs> instead of viewed at my station. Oh, oh, that's funny. Yeah. A little morbid, but yeah. Funny. Um, so we had a party for him. He got to see my youngest brother march at the K-State Marching Band. Um, I mean, the band director at K-State saved us a spot for my dad to park in. I mean, it was this generosity that we saw was incredible. Um, and even when he passed away, we experienced such um, consolation. And I think that's part of our faith, um, you know, being a very family rooted in faith we had lots of beautiful prayers that we prayed and had great experiences i mean it's still terrible until awful and in the thick of it i wasn't able to tell you all the joyful things you know seven years out i'm able to say there right. were some, there were some joyful and beautiful things but if if i was to tell this story a few months after i lost my dad it would be like this is horrible and it sucks and mm. it's never gonna get better okay does that make sense? It does. And, and I, I almost I almost feel stupid trying to summarize or encapsulate what you just said, but uh, I'm just going to try anyway, and then you can maybe okay. make some corrections. <laughs> I just feel tacky commenting on, on this story that you just told me, because 
it's just really powerful. And yeah, I, I could see where if, if one of my parents were dying and if it were this protracted thing and if it were over 14 months and there were all these ugly medical facts and all that, I, I just would be in a haze. Mm-hmm. I would be sad. I would be angry. Mm-hmm. I would be depressed. I would probably be semi-self-destructive in yes. some way. I, I would just be doing all these these bad things, I think, and emotionally, you know, just not grasping that if this had to happen in part, the way it played out, it was actually a little bit of a gift. Mm-hmm. Because here, seven years later, you can actually look back and you can say, that was actually kind of funny, this thing that he did, or, yeah. or that one sentence he said about the stars playing a concert that was poetic and beautiful. Yeah. And he went to my brother's events and he traveled out to see me and just... Mm-hmm. All of these these beautiful things happened, you know. I and you, thank God, I guess you're able to, you know, enjoy them now. Correct. Because at the time, it was probably just hell on earth. Yes, and I and then that's an important distinction I wanted to make because I feel like I don't want anyone to think that if they're not seeing joy in their grief right now, that something's wrong. And that's something we can talk about when we talk about okay. grief in general. Okay. But really, like, in the thick of it, I was just, like, trying to survive. Okay. And that's kind of where we can talk about, like, how do you know when to get help? Or how do you deal with grief? Yeah. Yeah. And it also just sort of hints at, I guess every person is probably going to grieve in a different way. Yes. Absolutely. And that's so. another important thing to remember because when I was grieving, everyone else around me was grieving and we all were behaving differently. And that could become very frustrating because you're like, why aren't you doing it my way? But I mean, in real life, we do that too, right? Like right. outside of grief, yeah. you're like, well, why aren't you doing it my way? I don't understand you. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's something to cover as well. But what really got me to start not just surviving was there were so many days I couldn't get out of bed. There were so, and I had a, you know, an infant to take care of. Yeah. And there were so many days where I was just like. So how do you do that? I mean, or when I, an infant cries, don't you just pretty much you just have to handle yeah. it whether you feel like it or Correct. not? Yeah. And so it was, it was a blur. And really, that's kind of what we talk about with you know just fresh grief is it is a fog, and you're surviving, and there's not much else you can do but mm. make sure you eat, make sure you try and sleep as much as you can. And do what you can to just survive. Just get yeah. to the next day? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's one step at a time. It's that kind of thing. And I had a couple people mention to me, you know, are you taking care of yourself? <laughs> I'm like, well, a new mom, how do you take care of yourself anyway? And yeah. then on top of that grief. Um, so I did, I was talking on the phone with hospice, okay. most hospice um provide some kind of bereavement counseling. Okay. So that's another tip is if your family member or something is in hospice, they should be able to provide that for you for free. And so I was on the phone with this person. He was wonderful and he gave me a lot, but I needed the in-person thing. Mm. And I had two people call me personally and say, hey, I think that counseling might be a good thing for you. Okay. And I'm like, well, I'm already seeing it. I'm already talking to somebody. So, you know, and they're like, think you need to talk you know they're just like 
gently like pushing. you were talking to what a counselor? bereavement counselor okay you're talking to hospice. that person but then you had friends telling you that that's not enough you right. need somebody else yeah and i think they were more talking about it needs to be a little bit more often because i was only talking to maybe like once a month okay and it also in person you know like yeah. over the phone there are so many cues that that person can't pick up you know that's that true and... you're talking to somebody over the phone and it's i don't know it's a thousand times better than texting you know, you, you don't get anything from that, mm -hmm. I, I feel. Like in terms of tone or body right. language or things like that, I think mm -hmm. it's a real problem. But yeah, in person, there's just no substitute for being in person. Right. And especially when it's a topic you don't really want to talk about, but you know you right. need to. Right. So on the phone, I could mask certain things and I could not talk about certain things because he wasn't able to see how my face actually looked when I was saying yeah. things. And so... Um, I looked, did a lot of research and found a hospice in Indiana that provided counseling for people who weren't even a part of the hospice. As okay. long as they were, they were like, please make a donation when you can. Okay. And so I was like, well, when we actually have money after Jonathan's done with his PhD, then I will send <laughs> yeah. them a big fat check, but can't right now. Um, so that's kind of where I was like, okay, people are kind of mentioning this to me. More than one person. More than one person mentioned, okay. you know, maybe seeing accounts. And these were friends? Yes. One so, was a friend and one was a family member. Okay. And the family member I didn't I didn't have a very strong relationship with, but that's the one that kind of tipped me over because I'm like, okay, mm. if someone who who isn't super close to me is worried about me, I feel like something something must be noticeable. Right. Well, especially then when you're getting confirmation from a second source. Yes. Then that could shove you over the edge. Right. And I, I do have to say that even though I am an emotional person already and I talk a lot about feelings and I go very deep and I'm very authentic, but the idea of counseling is still very terrifying hmm. because there are so many misconceptions about it. You right. Know, like right. it's like you're laying on a couch with somebody with a with a notepad and they're just like talk about it and then they just take all these notes and then they're like all right see you later and it's like right right they don't give you any advice right. there's no direction there's uh hey thank you for spilling your guts but there's there's no impetus to move in this direction or that right and it's like oh your time's up all right we'll see you in a week yeah here give me 400 bucks 400 bucks you know yeah. and it's like i needed to figure out what counseling actually looked like okay and get over it I'm like, and what you know, did you find out? I found out that I feel like most people would be very much benefit from some sort of counseling. Okay. Because it's not for sick people. Kind of like you go to the doctor to prevent, you know, problems. Yeah, like an life. annual physical. Yeah. And I'm like, our mental health is very important as well. Oh, for sure. And so checking in on that is not for sick people. My sister likes to say that. We'll be at a great day in society when we start treating mental illness the same way that we would treat a broken leg. Mm -hmm. You know, or, yeah, like or even take preventative medicine. Yeah, like well, I'm I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of, I don't know, the fitness industry in general. I mean, you know, it has its bad things here and there, but I think just the general idea of like, hey, you're pretty good, but we're gonna make you excellent. Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoy that. I like that a lot. And yeah. I, I think the same thing for your mind. Yes. You know, if you've got an average brain, congratulations. <laughs> That's wonderful. Right. Um, but wouldn't it be great if you had a superior brain? And mm -hmm. I don't just mean intellectually. I mean emotionally. Right. 
Yeah, so. and I think that with grief, it's something that society has kind of pushed away. It's kind of like, mm. will you come back once you're done with all that sadness? Just come, yeah. you can re-enter life once you're done being sad. Yeah. And counseling is kind of like, okay, you know, that's for people that really are struggling. Like, yeah. And well, and there's like, there's been a stigma attached to mental illness, right. and I've studied a little bit of evolutionary psychology, and you know, from the standpoint of evolutionary psychology, uh, human beings were probably uh, raised in groups of about 100 to 200 people, and so you wanted people who are similar to you in, their, in your tribe, and mm-hmm. uh, that other tribe on the other side of the hill, well, those people were strangers, and then half the time you went to war with those people, and <laughs> you killed each other, and it just wasn't good, so anybody that looked like way too different in terms of behavior, et cetera, that this is not good. I mean, this is a potential threat. They could be friendly, but they could also be dangerous. And so, you know, the same thing like with a sickness, you know, so if you have a sickness in your tribe, well, what if it's a, you know, some sort of an illness and it runs through the entire tribe? What if it kills everybody? Thus, well, you know, maybe we should put this person out in the snow, you know, because we, it's better that one person die than that the whole group dies. This is not good, it's not ethical, but it's, it's maybe, maybe that's the psychological basis of why we do that. Mm-hmm. You know, so we see the person who's sad or angry, and then we think, I need to get away from this person. I need yes. to cross to the other side of the street, or hey, that, that lonely, desperate person in class. Well, they just sort of give off an, a whiff of desperation. Mm-hmm. And really, that's the person we should befriend. Exactly. And that's the person we should like, you know, give the big hug to and try to include and just all those type of things. But two million years of evolution is kind of hard to overcome. I mean, if that person is going to sink the whole tribe, (laughs) then people are just instinctively going to shun away from that because they just think, hey, you know, that's contagious. Yeah. Whatever that person has, physical, mental, it's contagious. Right. Yeah, don't don't bring it back to the rest of the tribe. Yeah. I was talking with a uh, widow this morning, actually. Okay. And she's like, people just don't know how to talk to me. And I was like, yeah, because no one has really been educated on how to speak to people, even you know, who are grieving, even though it's not a communicable disease. <laughs> she's okay. like, we don't have a disease. <laughs> no. So, well, Carrie, we've got about three different threads, but may- maybe they all tie together. One is just that you walked into counseling and you found out that it was very different than what you expected. Mm-hmm. But then another thread basically is that, okay, this is not a disease. This is a normal life condition. Um, and then there were other threads too. Let's, why don't you pick up all these threads wherever you want to pick them up. And let's kind of get me to how I got involved with the grief ministry. I think that might help. Yeah. Then that might help tie all these threads together. So then, um, I lived in Indiana and I met with this wonderful woman, um, for counseling about every two weeks. And she just gave me so many tools. I think that was the big thing is like, she gave me handout after handout of like, these are the physical things that you can notice. Here are the things that you might be doing. These are the things that are normal. Here are a bunch of book recommendations. Okay. She taught me some guided meditations. She taught me just geez, all these coping tools okay. so that I wouldn't feel super crazy. Okay, so there's like physical symptoms. There are physical symptoms. Can you give me one or two of those? Um, for me, it was like the tightness of the chest. Okay. Like anytime I would think of something related to my dad or even just even subconsciously like I would just feel tight in the chest okay I would have muscle aches or just you know I was extra tired Mm. because 
I'm just going everywhere, but because when the body experiences trauma, which losing a parent is a traumatic experience, um, it, the body holds on to that and the body works through it similar to how your brain has to work through your body's trying very hard to hold on. Correct. And as a result, it's tense as hell. Yes. Gotcha. Which is exhausting Mm -hmm. and causes muscle ache and probably spikes your cortisol, you know, the stress hormone. Yes. And so it's, your body's trying to survive because it feels like you've had this physical experience, you know, it's had this physical threat. And so your body's storing all of that and then your emotions are crazy. And then you're also trying to just try and live a normal. Yeah. What's going on with your emotions in this situation? Because I'm thinking sad and I'm thinking mad. Yeah. But what else, what else is happening? So as I'm processing all of this with the counselor, a lot of it is the sadness, but then it's secondary loss. It's like the loss that my children experienced not having their grandfather. Mm. It's the loss of not having my dad go through all of my, he won't see any more of my kids. Right. You know, he, he won't, meet my brother's future spouses just all of these what we call secondary losses that are happening along with just the enormous loss of not having that person with you so there's the sadness and then it's the um anger of like why me the woe is me kind of thing you know like why god like there god why did this happen like there's those questions of like well i prayed why didn't you give me the miracle like i had to go through a lot of these difficult um almost like an existential crisis kind of experience because your whole world, my whole world was rocked because my whole life I'd had my dad and now he's not here. And so I go through all of that, thankfully with the guidance of a counselor. So I don't spiral and go even more nuts. Right. Because I, I feel like, (laughs) I feel like when people have one problem, it's extremely easy to suddenly have two problems, three problems, four problems. And I guess what I mean by that is this, I don't know. Let's say I'm having trouble at school. Well, then that might create trouble at home. Mm-hmm. And now I've got maybe two gigantic problems. Exactly. And then if I've got a job, maybe I start showing up late for work and I start getting ridden up and maybe I'm yeah. going to get fired. So now I've got three big problems. And I don't know. I come home and I kick the dog. Yes. You know, so now the dog doesn't like me and <laughs> the dog was my only friend. All my other friends have left. Correct. So now I'm in a spiral. And that's how a lot of people get into trouble with grief or with any kind of trauma or anything like that because um, we're not as aware of what our body's doing or what our mind is doing. Yeah. So that's what the counselor has really helped me with is like, okay, you're actually upset that Father's Day is coming up. You're not mad that your husband didn't load the dishwasher. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. How do you how do you tell the things that are real from the things that are not real then? Because like yeah. I could be focusing, let's say on you, and yeah. I'm focusing on the dishwasher yeah. and all that. And, you know, let's say, you know, maybe genuinely I might be upset because he said he was going to do it, but that was four days ago, Yeah. you know, and I, but, you know, so we got dishes piling up all over the place. Da, 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 da. How do I know that it's really Father's Day that's bothering me and not the dishwasher? I think there's a couple things to, to, that I have learned. You have to be more aware of yourself. Like, you need to be aware of, okay, is there a significant thing happening? Right? You know, okay. Is there something coming up? Because our body stores that as well. Mm. For some crazy reason, our body knows the time of year when things happened or, 
you know, so like well, your no, body that's, that's has a true. I, I think there's an anniversary thing that happens with people yes. that I got sick a year ago, and so now I'm thinking about it now. Mm-hmm. You know, or or in your case, I guess my father yes. died a year ago, and so therefore I'm thinking about it now. So you need to be aware of that on a subconscious level, correct. almost. Yes. So like being attuned to that, and then also, is this a more um, exaggerated response than my normal. Oh, okay. So ordinarily, if I would frown at the dishwasher thing, but instead I found myself wanting to tear off his head. Correct. Or I'm like screaming at him because like, why, why did you do this? Blah, blah, blah. You know, like that's not normally me. So okay. if I'm doing that, I, I hopefully then in you my have good to... day, I would stop and be like, I think I'm having a grief burst. As oh, okay. So those are the things to be aware and, of. And this is commonly recognized enough in grief ministry that this is an actual process that happens. Like, we're, this isn't just something Carrie discovered. I, I, it's through my experience with reading about it, talking okay. to people, my own experience, okay. that kind of thing. Like, um, it's well established in the literature. That it's, I believe that it's something. We talk, I mean, grief first is something that's discussed okay. a lot, but it's also that, like, the, the, the attuneness to your grief okay. is really important. So it's an it's an actual phrase, grief burst. A grief burst. Got yeah. it. We can talk about those later too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm trying to get. No, I, <laughs> there's I, so much to talk about. Yeah. Um, no, I. I this is good. So, um, working with a counselor to figure all that stuff out, and my husband graduates, and we decide, oh, it's probably our next step would be to move back to Kansas City. Well, Jonathan's mom had been diagnosed with mesothelioma, which is another okay. monster. Okay. And so we decided, let's just pack up and let's move back to Kansas City so we can be with your mom. Because I wish that I would have been able to do that for my dad. Yeah. So, like, being able to kind of help my husband with that. So we moved back to Kansas City, and we're, we live with his mom for four months before she passes away. Okay. So she died... In 2016, a month before my second child was born. Oh, okay. So we were back in Kansas City, and I was raising, again, a newborn with this new grief coming on. Yeah. And so um, I believe it was within that year is when I had began talking to Marcus again. Yeah. Who started the young adult. Right. We call it grieving young adults. And my brother had been a part of the group, and he and I decided just to start going together. And that was the, the thing about grief support that I think is important to, to remember is that that crazy phrase grief or no, it's a uh, misery loves company. Misery loves company. And grief groups is kind of like that. Okay. And this group in particular though, is not just like, let's like lament. It's like, can, how can we actually support each other? Okay. So, you know, because we're all in a similar state in our lives, we're all, you know, either we're in this a similar age group and it's just, it's become kind of another safe spot. It's Good become knowledge. a safe space kind of okay. where, you know, you don't have to tell your story to these people. Okay. You know, like you show up and you're like, oh, you've lost someone. Okay, cool. You're part of it. You know, it sounds a little <laughs> bit like an AA or something mm-hmm. where, you know, people might go to, uh, I don't know, 90 meetings in 90 days, I guess is, mm-hmm. is you know, what people do sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I've never been to an AA meeting, but I've got friends who have told me things mm-hmm. and I've read. So maybe 90 meetings in 90 days. And some people don't speak for the first 87 right. days. Mm-hmm. They just absorb. 
Well, that's what we talk about when we when we explain the group to people is we're like, this is a place for you to come to feel supported in your loss. It does not matter what loss it's been. It doesn't matter how long ago it was. It it doesn't even matter if you have any sort of religion or faith. Okay. It's come here and we hope to give you tools to okay. cope in a positive way and to share your wisdom with how you have been able to like tell your deal. story. Yeah, tell your story. When you when you feel like it. Yes. And it's like yeah, we always tell people you don't have to speak. Um, just come and take what you can. Um, so we've had people in all different ages and stages within that, you know, bubble. You know, it sounds a little bit like AA again in the sense that, okay, everybody's gathered together. Nobody has to speak. Um, do you have steps? Like AA's got 12 steps. No, we are not really a curriculum kind of group. Okay. When it was created, we had a few um, counselors that kind of helped to facilitate. So they provided a lot of the materials from what they would do with their other support groups or with their clients. Okay. So for the first around three years, we had some counselors that kind of helped to facilitate. Um, They moved on to help with other groups at other parishes. And so... We've been doing just a conglomeration of things Okay, now. of different of methods. Of different methods. Because as a teacher, I'm very aware that not everyone, not everyone learns the same way. Not everyone's comfortable with all different formats. So sometimes, like, we would study grief theory. So we would talk about all these different, you know, like we talk about the five stages. Which okay, Kubler-Ross. I could go on a huge tangent about that because it's not actually very helpful for grievers. <laughs> okay, like the whole five stages of... Correct. Uh, just just briefly, okay, I think, what are they? There's oh denial, gosh. starts with denial. It's denial, anger, anger acceptance. I think acceptance um, is well, last. Acceptance is last, and then there's, oh, bargaining. And then there's despair, and then there's yeah. acceptance. right. Anger, no, I'm sorry, denial, anger, bargaining, uh, depression or despair, finally acceptance. Correct. And, um, but I I don't think it was ever meant to be like a formula, like, oh, everybody moves exactly in these five stages. And don't quote me on this, I believe that that was written more for the people who were dying. Okay. And so using that as a, formula for grief for is like not, any kind of grief no, like like just kid gets even... cut from the football team yeah. when, when football was his dream okay yeah it hurts your feelings but that's not the same thing you right. know it's yeah so but yes it, it can be a good guide like i she has one that's on grief and grieving and that one is a little bit better okay um but it still talks about those but anyway so we talk about that we also talk about the four tasks of mourning and that one is more about trying to, um, your relationship with that person changes. Like okay. the person doesn't go, they, they physically go away, but their the relationship with that person stays, but it's different. So the four tasks of mourning help you to work through how do I shift how I relate to this person? What, what are the four tasks? Oh gosh, I really should have done my research. Um, give me one or two. Oh my gosh. I don't remember. Hmm. I should have done my research beforehand. Um, let me think about it. Okay, we'll come back to that. <laughs> if not, we'll put a po- we'll put a link to the website sometime. There you go. Um, but I liked that one better. I think the one that I'm thinking of most is like 
how do you relate to this person now? Okay. So what are ways that you can talk to them, communicate with them, um, keep their memory alive? Yeah. I believe that's one of them. Yeah. Um, and then we talk about, I use, I did a, a lesson, quote unquote, of okay. music and grief. So um, we talked about like, um, pick the songs. Are we, are we like, what does music do for you? What are the songs that make you happy? What do they make you sad? You know, like that. Because we talk about like, there are times where you just need to grieve. And so we make a playlist of songs that help you work through those emotions. Okay. Um, so I have a list of 101 songs for okay. grieving. And then we got, I had everybody go to Spotify and make their own playlist. Just because, again, differentiation. Right. Some people, right. Right. you know, do grief through music. Some people do it through writing. Some of them do it through reading. So it's just this, this um, that we we gone through different things. Right okay. now, we're reading this fabulous book. And we brought it because okay. I just love it so much. Um, it's called It's Okay That You're Not Okay. Okay. And it's by Megan Devine. Okay. And this book, I've just discovered with this, we have about eight people in our group right now. And we all reading the book together, like two chapters, a meeting. And we read it beforehand and then we talk about it. And again, not everybody has to talk, but most people have something to say. And this book is so good, especially for fresh grievers, because she's so real. Mm. She's like, this sucks. And people are going to try and tell you not to be sad, but you need to be sad. Yeah. <laughs> you need to yeah. go through these emotions. You well, need to. You do. You do. And, and I want to kind of ask, um, okay, so... You and I talked a little bit before about, I guess, the need that we have to grieve, but maybe our society does not have necessarily any kind of a method or a process that helps people grieve. You know, like somebody in your life passes away and then people say, I'm very sorry to hear that. And then a day or two later, they meet you on the street and they say hi and all the rest of that. But you know, people really don't know what to do. They don't know when are you expected to be over this, right. you know, or are you expected to be over this? And just by way of contrast, I was just thinking about how in the, maybe in the 1920s, uh, people would wear a black armband. Mm -hmm. I remember reading about a man whose 16 year old son died. And so he put on a black armband and this was very normal. People would say, okay, you're allowed to wear that for a year. And then that would let people know, okay, so this is why this gentleman is maybe being a little bit more quiet than usual or more reserved, et cetera. And just don't pester him too much. You can ask him questions, you know, if you feel like it, if you're close, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he gets a year. And then at the end of the year, in the story, the man took off the black armband, put it in a drawer, and left it there. You know, and it didn't mean that, okay, I don't love my, my son anymore. And it doesn't mean I'm never going to visit his gravesite. And it doesn't mean, oh, I'm never going to tell funny stories or anything like that about him. It just basically let people know grief is a normal human emotion. It might go for a while. And we're going to give people a year in this society. Right. And... You know, okay, you could quibble. People could say, well, how about 11 months? How about 13 or something like that? But, mm -hmm. but the point is that they had a process mm -hmm. and people can modify it yeah. any way they want it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if you didn't want to wear a black armband, I suppose you didn't have to wear a black armband. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know, just contrast this with today. I don't think we have a process. Correct. I don't yes. even think subgroups, some subgroups might. But, right. you know, for example, you know, I don't know if Catholics or Methodists or uh, other groups, just et cetera. I just don't know if we have a process. Right. And so the, the process right now is, hey, have a visitation okay, let's have a funeral and a luncheon and then go live your life. Right. So you get three days or however long this takes. Um, In most traditions, I feel like. Yeah. The visitation is, hi, I'm sorry for your loss. Here's a hug. Goodbye. And and everybody says, I mean, you know, I didn't know what to say. Right. And it, to me, I was in such a fog. I don't remember what most people said. And I do remember who was there. And that's something that, I always want to tell people mm. who support their who need to support a friend who's lost someone. If you can go to the visitation, the funeral, something, go. By all means, go. If you can go, go. It might be hard for you if you if you've had a loss yourself, but for, from in my experience, like it was so amazing to see people who took the time to acknowledge my loss. Yeah, and. And that's something that I always remember and I will always take with me is like, because this is the only time you really have to honor yeah. that person because we, our society doesn't do much. No. Now, I do know that the Jewish traditions have a shiva. Okay. I don't know if they do that the way that it has been in the past, but it's a long, it's multiple days Okay. where the family sits in their home and people just come and bring food and they come and sit and they talk about their person. Okay. And... I would have loved that. And this goes on for like a week, Days. two Probably weeks? Probably a week. Okay. So I, again, I wish I would have done my research. Okay. Um, but that was my understanding. And so people would come to you. So you could be in your home and they would bring you food and they'd just be like, oh my gosh, your loved one was so amazing. I remember this and this. That kind of stuff doesn't get to happen at a visitation. It would be very positive. Yes. Because you would hear all these great stories about your mom or your dad mm-hmm. that you didn't know. Right. Some good turn that your parent did. Because it's not waiting in a line for, you know, a specific amount of time. Right. And keep the line moving. Keep the line moving, you know, and people are so sad. They really don't know what to say. They haven't had time to think about it. And and we've never been trained. I mean, if if we're told anything, it's just to say, I'm so sorry for your loss. Right. Pretty much that phrase. And again, I could go on a soapbox about that phrase as well. (laughs) Well, just because, you know, I, I guess I... We're not picking on people who offer up that phrase. No, but no. but the thing is, is with no training, exactly, you're okay. going to you're going to roll out the one sentence that everybody tells you to say, right? Because you know you're you're not told just speak from the heart, right? Or if you don't know what to say, just give the person a hug. Correct. Yeah, I you're, mean, you're just you're not told, there, or visit them three days later. Yeah. You're, you're not told any of this stuff, right? So and that's and that's so like. The whole process we don't really have, and I I would love an armband for a year because you're so raw for that whole year. Having some people give you extra compassion when you're trying to emotionally, physically adapt yes. to this world without your person. Yes, like that would be such a gift to some people to just be like, this is my. Grief it's a card, symbol. You know? It's a symbol that this is what I'm going through. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it just reminds me of a story. It's maybe a little tangential. I hope not. Uh, Stephen Covey tells it in the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective okay. People. 
And that's a great book, and it frequently pops up on Amazon's Top 100, and that's 31 years after it was published wow. because it's a very powerful, excellent book. Well, Stephen Covey is sitting on a subway, and there's this father, and he's got four little kids, and uh, the father is just lost in thought. And meanwhile, the kids are causing a real ruckus, and they are disturbing the other people on the subway, and uh, they're just noisy, and they're out of control. And so Stephen Covey is a father of nine children. So then he says to the man, sir, don't you think you should control your children? And the man looks up and he says, what? Huh? And you can kind of tell, okay, he's, he's lost. He was lost in thought and he, he just came back to reality, back to the subway. And he said, yeah, I, I guess I suppose I should, but we just got back from the hospital and they lost their mother. Yes. And... I guess I should be controlling them. And then Stephen Covey said his, his mental attitude just switched in half of a second. He went from irritation, yeah. this is an irresponsible parent, uh, these kids are bothering the old lady, you know, to how can I help? Yes. How can I help this man? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the black armband would be, it would be a sign yeah. for people. Yeah, and I think for a year, it it gives kind of the wrong idea about grief, but you know, a year is kind of where you're completely in shock before the, you start going through the, or you're done with all the anniversaries, but then you're living the next year, yes. which is the year after where it's becoming more real. Yeah. So there's not a timeline for how long you're going to be sad, but that year might be a good this is the sense, like the extra sensitive time yeah. of grief. I, I think it's, yeah, if nothing else, it's a conversation starter. One yes. person might need three months. Yeah. One person mm -hmm. might need 24 months. Right. But I just think that it would be a beautiful thing for our society to be able to recognize when people are hurting and be able to change our mindset. Just like what you said, Stephen Covey. Like, oh, that person's having some problems. I can be a little bit kinder or, you know. Yeah. Okay, so, so what else do you do in the group? Kind of what I pictured is, is that you might read a book and discuss it. Mm -hmm. There might be some music playlist involved. What, what else do you do so, to, to help people? In our, in our meetings, we, we usually start just saying, what have you noticed about your grief in the mm. past couple of weeks or since we have met last? Okay. Because we meet usually around every two weeks. Okay. Um, just to keep that consistency. And if you miss one, then, you know, you're not waiting a whole other month or, you know. Yeah. So um, we ask, like, what have you noticed? Okay. So it can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. Um, and that starts a really good conversation in general. Like, the past couple meetings, we've talked a lot about Father's Day. Just, like, okay. the expectation of it. What are we going to do? Um, so we just basically talk about what has what have you done? You know, because one of our members said, what have you guys done for Father's Day? Or what have you done for Mother's Day? And people were just giving, you know, things that they have done or what they're thinking about doing. So it's just a wonderful, comfortable place to be around people who have experienced something similar. We, we haven't experienced the same thing. That's another thing. Yeah. We can't say, I know how you feel. Because you don't know how they feel. No, you might be in the same city. Yeah, but I can say I've, I've experienced something similar, so I feel I can relate a little. You know, I can yeah. relate a little. Yeah, um, you might be in the same general neighborhood, but not necessarily even the same ballpark. Correct. So, um, but we kind of open it up like that. 
And then sometimes we have a specific topic that we're going to cover. But right now we're doing a book study. I believe in the near future we're going to do another book study, but it's more like kind of a, a curriculum. Gotcha. So we've done it before. It's called the grief recovery. Okay. And it... Like with steps. Like do these steps? Yes. It's it's very pointed each chapter. You usually do it with someone who's trained in the grief recovery method. Okay. Um, it's very psychological um, because you go through like your whole timeline, your life timeline with your person and you go through... It's, it's, it's very intense, but it is a good avenue for some healing. Okay. Um, there are just lots of... Um, opportunities to, okay. to do different things and people have stayed throughout the whole like I have one member who's been with me ever since I've been in there so like okay. four or five years oh okay there's someone you know people who are who lost someone in January and then there's people all in between okay so and, so tell me a story of somebody where you feel like this person made a lot of progress um I feel like there there's there's many um one person um, they, they had lost, um, babies okay. and they had felt like they just weren't, there's not a lot of groups or okay. there aren't a lot of people who have lost their children. And so they were feeling kind of down about our group because they thought, oh gosh, I don't belong. Everyone's lost a parent or a spouse. But then we started doing this grief recovery curriculum. And in the first chapter, it's like, it doesn't matter what your loss is. It could be a loss of a friendship. It could be your fish. It could be a job. It could be all of these things. Like everyone is welcome. Yeah. Everyone can relate in this experience. And so then they felt like they were able to be a part of it. Okay. Does that cause a problem in any case? Like if some person said, Hey, I lost my spouse and somebody else said, I lost my goldfish. It would, I think. Um, and there are support groups for people who have lost animals. Okay. And that's where I would say your loss is important it is not as relatable in this setting, but I can help you find okay. a place where you... Do, do you screen people before they come into the group? Um, and... Most people, like, talk to us beforehand. Most people, gotcha. like, send us through their the Facebook. They send us a message through Facebook or contact us through email. So we kind of already have an idea of what it is. But we usually say, like, lost a loved one. So I don't know. I don't okay. Know about pets. Okay. We haven't, we haven't come up with that yet. Okay. Okay. But, um... So that, that was one thing where, so by the end of our grief recovery, they both had written letters and done all of it with, and it was, it was really awesome to see like, okay, they found a place. What does their life look like? I don't know, six months later, a year later or something like that. Like, or, it's, like, uh, let's say I go through a grief ministry program or process and I'm, let's say I'm with you for a year. Okay. And what does my life look like a year after that? Because I would want to kind of know that I'm not, I don't know, self-medicating with alcohol right. or something. So our hope with this is that we have given people tools to help to cope in a healthy way. Okay. So whether that's just the community that we've provided. Okay. Because, you know, you can make friends through people. Yeah, you can. Group. Yeah, you can. We have some people that plan a softball team together now because of this. Okay, and so the friendship expands the to other things. friendships can expand to other things. We also do fellowship. We do some trivia nights and things like that to, like, get to know each other. Okay. But my hope is that we've given, either we've read a good book that you can go back to or that we've talked about topics that you can keep in your mind for when you come up with mm. a grief burst or yeah. stuff like that. So 
my also my other hope is after you've gone through this group is that you're more confident in your um, relationship with your person. Okay. And more confident in maybe being able to help other grievers. Okay. Because really, the education is the piece that I think we all really need. That, that in our society, in that our society. we truly need. Right, because, you know, I talked about the, I'm so sorry for your loss. Like, that is a wonderful thing to say, because you're showing that you want to acknowledge their loss. Um, I always say... Um, I'm thinking of you. I always say I offer my condolences. I offer my sympathy. Um, I always pray. I say I'm sending prayers for um, consolation or prayers for comfort. May you find comfort. Um, I also quote um, the Beatitudes. Um, Blessed are those who mourn. May they be comforted. Yeah. Um, because I feel like those things to me were very comforting. Like, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm kind of like, but you didn't do anything. You know, I was like, yeah. it's not your fault that my person yeah. died. Like, you know, just say I'm with you. Like, and then another thing, this is also something I want to talk about. So this is good. Yeah. Um, also education about um, how to show up for someone who has lost. Okay. How time. do you do that? Well, first of all, show up. Okay. Do not just disappear. Yeah, don't don't say, gosh, my life is hard enough as is. Mm. I can't step into your big problem right now. And that's right now. fine because your personality might not be the person to like show up at the door and talk to them. Uh-huh. But you can send them a card. You can send them a DoorDash gift card. Okay. Actually, one of our um, members last night said, oh my gosh, my friends gave me money for DoorDash and it was the best thing ever because I didn't want to think about food. I didn't want to think about going to get food. I just needed food. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. So, you know, if you're not the person to show up in the physical way, do something, you do something that you are comfortable with. Okay. Um, if it's not showing up for the funeral, then send flowers or let them know that you've donated money to the cause that they've asked for. Um, there are so many ways to show up, if it, but it can fit into your personality. Yeah. Um, but disappearing because you're nervous is is going to look bad. Okay. If you don't know what to say, then even say, I don't know what to say. I love you. Yeah. Or this sucks. I tell that to people all the time. I'm like, your loss sucks. Do you, do you think? <laughs> I, I feel like... Okay, that's probably very hard for some people to do, to yes. show up in even any way, shape, or form. Correct. But I don't know. I'm just channeling my my inner tougher person, I suppose, and thinking it would actually be good for the person sending the card or sending the DoorDash or showing up in person. It would be good for them, and it would help them get over some of their sadness or mm-hmm. grief as well. Right. And I think that it also allows us to connect. Yeah. Um, It lets the people know, like, hey, I know that you're sad. Yeah. You don't have to talk about the sadness if that's not in your real house. Um, I am very comfortable with talking about the sadness. Like, I had a friend who just lost her mom, and the day after, I went to her house, and I sat with her, and we cried for, like, three hours. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And I... That was me. I can be the person that sits with you in the hole, in the mud... While everyone else is just like up at the top of the hole, like, are you coming up? <laughs> right. Right. I well that makes you a champ, Carrie. I well, don't think I could do that. Exactly. And that's why I'm like, not everybody can do this show up in the same way. But I think it's you still can show up. If you're scared to talk about grief, like just you don't have to. Okay, so so I, I think a big question that 
I would want to know, maybe everybody would want to know is, when can I reasonably expect, maybe I'm not phrasing this correctly, to just feel normal again or to feel better, to just feel like a human? Because I, I don't want to join a grief ministry and be in it for 25 years. Correct. I don't. Right. So when... Right, and it's a very tricky question because it is, it's not the same for everybody. It's, um, it's variable, but, but I yeah. guess, how do I know so how are some things, when so I've been in there too long? Right, so if you are there, um, as a, if it's a crutch, if it becomes just like a part of your identity is, I just go to the support group. If you don't feel like you're growing, like just be honest with yourself. Okay. I mean, that's, that's what I tell myself. Like I ask myself all the time, why am I still facilitating this grief group seven years after I've lost Okay, my dad. so you're scrutinizing yourself on right. this seven years after the fact. Right, because I'm like, am I here because I get this like high off of it or am I here because this is my ministry or am I here because I still have things to heal? Okay. And, and it's a combination of all of okay. it. But, I mean, really it's be honest with yourself. Are you, do you feel like you are moving forward with your grief? Okay. Are you leaving it behind? Are you not, are you shutting it out or are you, because really I think to know that you are ready to be a part of the world and move forward is, can you carry your grief with you? Okay. Are you able to have moments of remembering your person and have that moment, but then be present in the next Okay. Moment? So can I go back to work mm-hmm. and can I, I don't know, join the softball or the volleyball team and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe between you know, hits or something, I look off into the sunsets and I think, oh gosh, you know, that kind of reminds me of dad for mm-hmm. whatever reason. But then I guess snap my attention back to the game when I need to. Correct. And then be able to tend to those feelings when it's appropriate. Okay. And I, and that takes a very long time um, for some people and some people it doesn't. And it's not like, again, it's, there's no timeline or there's no like, once you've hit this, you're good to go. I know. I, I don't <laughs> look. We have this quick fix mentality sometimes, right. and mm-hmm. everything can get fixed with a pill. Right. And you know, pills are just so much easier than I guess maybe doing the hard work on things. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that being said, yeah, I, I don't want to be on the pill forever, and I don't right. want to be going to the grief meeting forever. And right. I so so I can go for a year. Maybe that seems reasonable, but. Mm-hmm. Maybe longer, but and some people go one time and they get what they need okay. from that one meeting, and we don't see them again. Or we weren't the right fit, and they go and find something else. Gotcha. Um, so, I've, is the real metric? Am I making progress? And maybe only you can know that. Correct. And that's why, like, there's there's no timeline for how long are you going to be super sad about these things? Or is, is it going to get worse before it gets better? I, in I some don't cases? want to scare people, but it can. Okay. Um, because the first, this is something I like to be honest about, even though it's hard. The first year you're pretty much in a fog and you're getting through all of the anniversaries. Okay. For me, the second year was really difficult because I was getting out of the fog and I was actually physically able to feel my feelings. Okay. And so the second year was like a little bit more of a solidifying of, oh, that's right. He's not camping with Boy Scouts. All yeah. Year. You know, because there are some times where I just go to my mom's house and like, I'd just be like, oh, dad's at Boy Scout camp. You know, like it just wouldn't click that like he was not coming back. Right. Um, so that's kind of where it's like, it can get a lot harder 
And in our age group, it's it can get harder de- depending on where you are in life. Mm. Because, you know, when I had my second child that neither of their grandparents got to see, that was hard for me. And when I moved into my new home, which was just a month ago, I had some triggering events because my dad's a handyman and I wanted to call him and have him come fix my stuff. So things are going to happen. And we talk about it in waves. Like at the beginning, there are lots of waves crashing against you and they're really painful and hard and it's hard to breathe. And then as time goes on, the waves still come, but they're slower and they don't hit as hard. And so that's kind of what we talk about. Like just again, being aware. You really don't expect the waves to ever come to an end. I mean, if you were 20 and if you lived to be a hundred and if you're father passed away when you were 20 you are still going to love him and remember him when you were 100 Mm -hmm. which probably sounds obvious when I say that you know I was listening to somebody else who has a degree in psychology and they explained that when things happen to a person they get lodged in your subconscious and then they are there for all of eternity and that oftentimes the subconscious does not differentiate anything in terms of time Mm -hmm. so if something happened five minutes ago or five years ago or 50 years ago in the subconscious, it might just feel like that just happened five milliseconds ago. And so you never really truly get over something. I guess what I'm hearing you say is you just learn how to function in the world and to be happy and to Mm -hmm. maybe consciously remember the good times Mm -hmm. and to emphasize a bunch of those good times. Right. And so maybe that's a positive reaction, like your positive reaction to your father's passing now is that you can look back on that year and you can think of all the funny, even goofy things Mm -hmm. and and maybe something makes you laugh or something makes you smile. I mean, at the time, no, you were going through hell, but right right now you're able to just find what was good about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thank God in retrospect, it, it wound up in certain respects turning out to be like a gift that kept on giving yeah. because there were so many light and mm-hmm. happy moments. I'm, I'm trying to speak intelligently, <laughs> but it's, I feel dumb again trying to try to <laughs> encapsulate your experience. Well, and it talks about how, and it also speaks to how human we are and how we can be sad and happy at the same time. Yes. And I feel like being able to experience joy and sadness, you know, in the same time is such a beauty. And I think, when we look about that with grief too, like you are going to be carrying this grief for the rest of your life. Yes. It just will look differently as time passes. It's like the grief ball stays the same size, but you grow okay. around the ball bigger. So like the grief stays the same, but like your jar, I guess, yeah. just keeps getting bigger. Yeah. Like or, if you were the size of a golf ball at one point, maybe later the size of a slow pitch softball or a basketball. And then it just, you keep growing. You're growing. The grief is the same size. I see. And then another analogy that I love is like if you lose a limb. Okay. You're going to not have that limb for the rest of your life and you learn how to live with that. Okay. And it's almost like grief has cut off one of your limbs and you're learning how to live like that yeah and and so the idea of like you're going to be done or that you're going to move on or whatever like it doesn't make sense you you really don't move on is kind of what i'm hearing you say you move forward because moving on to me implies that you're leaving something behind yeah and i'm never going to leave my dad behind yeah i i don't see why anybody would want to do something like that i mean if you really truly loved a person 
mm-hmm. know, a parent, a spouse, a friend, a child. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to leave them behind? Right. So I picture it as I'm picking up my backpack with the memories okay. and with the experiences, and I'm walking with that, and I'm moving forward. Okay. With my dad. That's but a good. But it's in a new direction. It's in a new way. And it takes time and effort to get to that point. Um, and so I just, to anybody who's grieving, I really want you to know you're not crazy. <laughs> like you're, you feel everything crazy. feels crazy, but things are expected. It's a natural response that we've talked about. So like if you need to find a counselor, find a counselor. If you um, have a creative outlet, find a creative outlet. Um, if you need to talk to people, if you are very much an extrovert and get energy from that, look for a support group um, and just find ways to help yourself um, be able to live with that, live with your grief. You know, I, I went through a really awful experience, I don't know, well over a decade ago, and I, I kind of don't want to go into the details, but I will mention that I was super depressed and I just thought, hey, this is, you know, there's going to be nothing good in my life from this point forward and, and things are only going to get worse. And I remember at the time actually literally phoning up about five or six friends who, who went through things that I thought were worse than what I went through and they were thriving. And so I said, hey, we're close friends. I am going through hell. What would you recommend that I do? What did you do? How did you get out of this? And, and just, I don't know, I guess I'm a librarian's kid. <laughs> I just took notes on what they said. And I distilled it into about five or six bullet points. Mm -hmm. And I literally tried to practice those things every day. One of them was just find somebody to talk to. And I I found out that a lot of people get pretty exhausted by this kind of talk rather quickly. Mm -hmm. But I had about three people that were excellent mainstays for me. And uh, they they were always willing to be a sympathetic ear. And, and being a guy, you know, I guess I would have about three minutes worth of things to say. <laughs> like, wow, today really sucks. And they'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, thank you. This was a really good talk. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. but they also recommended, hey, write, keep a journal. Mm-hmm. And I would do that. I like to write. Not everybody does. Um, they also said, why don't you do a few things that you've always wanted to do? Mm -hmm. So I think that was the year that I went scuba diving and skydiving and I went to Guatemala for 10 days and I also tried to learn Spanish and I just, I I went back and I I got a job at a place that I was teaching a night class at Rockers because I wanted to do that again, Rockers University. So I I just did a bunch. They said, pray, of course, every day. Uh, they said, you know, if you drink alcohol, maybe drink it like once a week, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe drink like two drinks, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I don't think I was going to fall into alcoholism or anything like that in the first place. But that just struck me as really sensible advice. Absolutely. It so, sounds very similar to what someone who is grieving would okay. need to hear as well. Absolutely. Okay. Are, are there any bullet points that, that you would either subtract um, or add from that list? No, I think that is a really great start because you don't okay. want to overwhelm people who are grieving as well because at least for me, it was like getting out of bed was my first yeah. and only goal. And so sometimes like setting setting realistic goals okay. is a good thing. Um, Major victory. I got out of bed. Yeah, I got out of bed or I made sure to eat three times today or, you know, things like that. Um 
but really focusing on taking care of your needs. Another thing would be boundaries, like learning okay. about yeah, setting up boundaries for yourself and okay. for others. Um, that was one thing that I learned a lot in counseling when I was dealing with um, my in-law family because they are grieving very differently than I grieve. And so we had to learn how to communicate with each other about our grief. Yeah. And I had to learn like what I can accept and what I can't. And so that we t- when we talked about like multiple problems stemming from one problem, I, I could see in-law relationships going Oh, badly. sure. Because, yeah, because the relationships. Everyone's grieving and we don't know what to do and we can't take care of anybody else but ourselves. <laughs> so, so then everybody starts arguing mm-hmm. and yelling and then the relationships like crash and burn. And all this kind of stuff. And then like, I don't want to talk to you for the next 10 years. Yeah. So then with counseling, my counselor was able to guide me and be like, hey, this is where you could probably put a boundary. This is where you could probably do this, which helped us immensely. Like I have wonderful relationships with my in-laws now, which I think would have tanked in this grief if I wasn't with a professional helping me to guide okay. through all of that kind of stuff. So hey, anyway. let's let's talk about boundaries for a little okay. bit then because... Um, you know, for some people, okay, they've read Boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud. Yep. And mm-hmm. then for other people, they've vaguely heard of just the idea that, oh, we should have boundaries. Um, so could you just clarify, maybe give some examples, like what's a good boundary for people to have? Why do we need boundaries? Well, I think um, boundaries is really, for me, they're really important because I don't ever really have boundaries. I'm always like, yes, yeah, sure, do everything and I'll just adapt to whatever you need. Um, walk all over me everybody else does and then I end up being upset about what I have let happen Mm, right right (laughs) and then I'm mad at those people which is not fair because I'm gonna let it happen so boundaries for me is like I this is what I can do to love you at my best okay so um for example I'm trying to think of one boundary oh so we're like we can host a dinner for this many people. Okay. And so I was like, I'm happy to host, but this is, you know, I'll host for eight. We can accommodate eight yes. people. So if somebody says, but I'd like to bring Lacey, Tracy, Macy, Stacy, and Pacey. Correct. And so now like, we're up to 14. Right. And I say, I, I told you that my, we only can do eight okay. at my house. Now, if you want it at my house, that's what it is. But if you want to host all those people, we'll come up with something else. So it's really just honoring your needs with being able to take, it's basically taking care of yourself enough so that you can love other people. Gotcha. In those situations. Gotcha. So that's, that's an example. them is really important too, so that you're saying, in order for me to be my best self, this is what I need. Okay. So we have it's to... It's not community. about you. It's about... But I need. We can't assume that the other person will know what the boundary is just right. because, well, intelligent people should know that or kind people it, should know that. Be what aware if they don't? That people will get upset about boundaries. Yeah. Because there were some that we set up um, just in our own grief. Mm-hmm. You know, we're like, please let us know who is coming to events. Right. Was one. And some people were just like, why do you need to know who's coming? And I'm like, because my anxiety at that point, I needed to know who was going to be there. Yeah. Because I was worried that I was going to have a grief burst at any moment and I didn't want to feel uncomfortable. Because if the option is having the event and knowing who's coming, or no, I, I just want to skip the event Correct. because you just added the straw that broke the camel's back. Correct. 
then we want to keep the camel intact, mm -hmm. you know, so you just keep that straw over there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, but it's, it's communicating the reasons behind that, which is hard. Okay. It was hard. It's hard for me sometimes to admit like, or, or to, to let someone know I have anxiety. Okay. But technically do they really, or morally or ethically, do they really need to know that? I mean, a person could say, listen, uh, we could accommodate eight people. I'm happy to serve dinner. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm providing everything. Right. So we could accommodate eight. Right. And then people say, well, what about nine? You know, isn't that kind of demanding a little bit? Because right. you're already providing things for free. When I think that that's what the problem is, too, is that the boundary, we don't set boundaries or we don't communicate boundaries very well just in general, which is another society okay. thing, which we could talk about another time. Um, so I think that it's very important to just communicate the boundary. You don't always have to say why. Kind of like when you send a text saying, hey, can you come over tonight? You don't, if you can't go, you can just say, I can't tonight. You don't have to say, I can't tonight because I'm going to shampoo right. my hair. We don't, you know, really, like, we don't really need a reason. So that's, a, that's an easy boundary to start doing is just, you don't have to explain I why you can't I think some come. people feel rude as hell when they say no. Right. But, but really, in all honesty, I think that, if you make the other person guess, like if you don't respond and then the other person has to guess, well, I guess this person means no, mm -hmm. then you're forcing everybody else to read between the lines. Yeah. And then you're actually making everybody else work harder mm -hmm. by not being direct with people. I, I think there's polite ways to tell people no. Right. Uh, I, I tell you what, if anybody has a hard time saying no in a polite way, I just recommend you watch about four episodes of Shark Tank and pay yes. attention, pay attention to Lori Grenier. Because Lori Grenier tells people no all the uh -huh. time. Yes. And she does it in a very sweet way. Yes, she, she has like a world-class ability to be super diplomatic and to just say, this investment is not for me. I am out. Right. And I think that when you're grieving, that's huge. Is because you can even say, you know, I used to be excited about going to my 4th of July party with my friends. And I'm not feeling it this year. So you can give yourself permission to not go. Yeah. Or you can say, I'm going to go for 10 minutes. Yeah. Or I'm going to tell my friends that I'm only going to stay till, you know, nighttime. That's whatever. a good boundary. Like, oh, yes. hey, I'm going to go to the party, but because I just don't know if I'm feeling it, I'm going to allow myself to leave after... I don't know, 10 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes, just whatever you set for yourself. And yep. then if you wind up staying for three hours right. and have a good time, well, hey, good. Yeah. Good. Then it, that's a bonus. Then it worked out in a beautiful way. Right. And I think that's also part of just being aware of your own grief and like learning about yourself. You don't have to do that through counseling. You just need to find out how, to, what, how you work and what you need. And be present to that and allow that to happen and take care of yourself. I mean, okay. that's really kind of what so, all of this is about. <laughs> okay, so set boundaries and then also try to communicate with people clearly in words that they can actually understand. Don't expect people to necessarily read between the lines all the time. Right. And don't expect people to know how, what to do or, you know, give some people grace. Yes. Because I, I have lost a friend because I didn't go to a funeral. And that was a really difficult experience for me um, because I, at that time, had never experienced a friend losing a parent. And so I didn't know what to do. Mm. And I there were some circumstances that I couldn't go to the funeral. But that friend was very mad with me, and we ended up 
I mean, we, we talked about it, thankfully, and we're on good terms, but it was one of those wake up moments. But how old were you when that happened? I was like 23, 24, okay. maybe. So maybe not a ton of experience. I didn't but... have a lot of experience. So both of us were kind of to blame. Like, okay. I don't believe that I should have been chastised for not going to the funeral. However, it showed me how important going, going to, the to the funeral actually is. Yeah. And then on my end, I was not very aware of what people need. Right. As grievers. And so I also am aware of that. But but the two of you have talked it out and made up yes. sense. Yes. Um, because I I also, in my life, am, I'm not confrontational, but when it comes to emotions and feelings and relationships, I want to talk about it. Okay. Because even if we aren't meant to be friends anymore, I want, you want to everything to be resolved. I want to be able to say my side and the other person's side and... You know. Well, otherwise, if you don't, it's probably just going to bother you for the next 20 years. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and that's another thing in Greek, man, I could talk forever. Um, but relationships can change as well. Like after having a big traumatic experience, some people will show up and some people won't. And some people can and some people can't. And giving people grace within that. But I, I'm always, I'm more of a merciful person than the judge. So... It's easier for me to do that. Um, but to really kind of discover, I guess, people's limits. Yes. And you discover your own limits. Like in a yeah. different, different context, completely different context, when I was running marathons, I definitely discovered a lot of limits. Mm-hmm. You know, I would discover things like, you know, I can only run three miles at a six minute and 27 second pace. I can't go any faster than that. Even if somebody was chasing me with a gun, I just can't. <laughs> You know, or like when you're lifting weights, I can only bench press this much weight. Mm -hmm. And, but then emotionally too, in life, you do find out your limits that, okay, I can laugh and joke about this, but I can't laugh and joke about that. That's true. You know, and so you find out, I guess your emotional limits on things too. And Mm -hmm. well, I guess it's a experience of being fully alive. Yes. Like once you push up against those limits like that and you find out, oh, the limit is starting to push back. And maybe it's going to crush me. That's, in a way, it's kind of good to know. Right. And I also think that, you know, we also learn, like, there are some people in our life for certain things that we need. And not everyone is meant for everything. And then once that need maybe gets met, mm-hmm. they're, they're just not going to be maybe your friend in 25 other contexts. Correct. You might have your, your grief friend, mm-hmm. but this person might not also be, I don't know, your tennis playing friend or your volleyball yeah. friend or your book club friend or something like that. Yeah. There's just a lot that happens with any traumatic experience and especially with grief. There's a lot to handle. And so being aware of that and tending to it. Okay. Well, Carrie, we've had a pretty long conversation on yes. this, and I, and I feel like a lot of good points came out that I'm probably going to have to spend some time thinking about. Is there anything that I should have asked that I didn't ask, or anything you wanted to talk about that, in my splendid ignorance, I just missed? <laughs> um, I think I was able to weave those things in as we were talking, um, because my biggest thing is I want people to have more access to knowledge about how to help people who are grieving and also help people who are grieving feel less alone, to feel like um, they know where to go if they need help, those kind of things. So 
there are always people to ask who have, who might recommend a counselor or you can start at a hospice area, you know, who can give you recommendations. Find your friends like you did that you can talk to about certain things. You know, if, if you know someone who's, who is grieving, talk to them, get ideas. Um, the web, <laughs> the web, <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. The internet is a great place. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love what's your grief.com. Okay. It's a wonderful resource. Um, for all different types of things that you want to learn about. Um, and yeah, okay. I don't know. Come to Grieving Young Adults if you're in the area. Okay, <laughs> or find one in your city or just anything Yeah, find a support this. group, um, you know, or just talk to someone, you know, but you don't have to do this alone. Carrie, I'm, I'm just deeply impressed with you. I think you're a beautiful soul and you're, you're doing something that I never thought about doing myself, but I'm, I'm just so glad that you are doing it. Um, what is your blog again for people? Um, it is smallpiecesofjoy.wordpress.com. And I have a whole section on my grief journey. So that would be kind of cool to check out. Thank you, Carrie. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this podcast far and wide.